0: As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
1: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state
2: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Carol Masser, along with Manis Cranny and Katie Greifeld. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and of course, on the Bloomberg Business app.
3: Christina Hooper is the Chief Market Strategist at Invasco. Christina, good morning. Um, Let's kick it off with tech. Uh, Will the Magnificent Seven be something that you've just got to absolutely own, whether it's reluctantly or not, and then broaden your church to perform well in 2024? Good morning.
4: Good morning. Great to be on. Um, so I think that the key to 2024 is to be well diversified. We certainly saw a strong performance from the Magnificent Seven, from areas of technology in 23. But I think the story for 2024 is about, at least in the first half of the year, expectations of a reacceleration in the back half of the year. And that suggests to me that we're likely to see smaller caps perform better. We're likely to see cyclicals perform better. Um, so we certainly want to have exposure to technology. That's part of being well-diversified. And I think um, there are arguments for why tech will actually be one of the better performing sectors. But I think it's really important to have that exposure to smaller caps and cyclicals um, it, it, because those really should benefit um, from a discounting of, of a recovery in the back half of the year. Christina, I always wonder,
2: you know, when you guys look back uh, or you look back at 2023, is there something that you had missed that you wish you had seen earlier in terms of trends Ends, and that, that that is kind of shaping how you're thinking about the investment environment in 2024.
4: Well, that was a much easier question to answer if (laughs) starting out 23, because 2022, I think, surprised many uh, in terms of of just how quickly the Fed hiked rates and just the damage to major asset classes. Um, You know, looking back at 23, uh, I think that was a more uh, an environment in which we expected to see something of a bumpy landing. It didn't come as quickly as we anticipated. Anticipated, And probably there are a lot of folks who expected some kind of landing in 23 that didn't see it. I'm still in the camp that anticipates a bumpy landing in 24 as opposed to a soft landing. I know that's not really the conventional wisdom today. Uh, but my view is that we saw so much aggressive tightening. And it was quite synchronized across major Western developed economies. Uh, so I don't think we're going to get away with a truly soft landing. But I do think we're going to see uh, a bumpy type of landing in the first half of the year, but it'll be quite brief, and then we can get that out of the way and and look towards a reacceleration in the back half. I love that you went there.
2: I wonder how much of that bumpy landing goes to something that we talked about, about what global central banks will be doing maybe differently. Maybe Europe has to ease earlier than the United States. So how does that kind of roll into your investment thesis?
4: Well, I don't think that there's going to be a lot of difference between the central banks in terms of when they start easing. I think the more important takeaway is that they are all going to be easing, and I think it's going to be rather significant this year, especially for the Fed. Um, I'm in the camp of 100 to 150 basis points this year, not because I think the economy is, is going to deteriorate dramatically, but because Fed officials themselves have admitted that we're monetary policy is today is very restrictive. And so if we see a continued disinflation, which I think we will, I think it's going to actually accelerate from here. uh, I think the Fed is going to be forced to cut to just get out of very restrictive territory.
5: And so, Christina, if we do see all of these big developed markets, central banks kind of moving in tandem when it comes to the downside, of course, uh, cutting rates in harmony, so to speak, how does that play out in global equity markets? Does that lead to another year where the U.S. is outperforming or how does the rest of the world shake out?
4: Well, I think that what we're going to see is probably the Fed cut more than other major central banks. And so what we're likely to see is a continuation of U.S. dollar weakening, and that should be positive for other areas of the world. Um, In particular, what we're likely to see is areas like the European stock market benefit um, from uh, more exposure to cyclicals, which I think are going to perform better, uh, again, as markets discount a reacceleration. I also think there's a lot of opportunity, and I'm most positive, on emerging markets, which I think will also benefit
3: uh, from an easing U.S. dollar.
5: So, Manis, I did ask about the rest of the world. You're okay. <laughs> i
3: got, got it in <laughs> there. To be fair, and no, I because they're not going to save your life and give you retirement Christina, we're getting a need.
2: lot of flack from Manis this morning yeah. that we're too U.S.-centric. Um, well, something else...
3: We then think- Jonathan Farrow would get on the phone and say, why are you talking about anything else apart from U.S. stocks, Manis? It's a U.S. stock market opening show. Focus, focus on the U.S. stocks, which is fair enough.
5: I hope he's not watching. No, but, he's walking uh, somewhere
3: very happy and, and healthy and away from here.
5: I would imagine so. But, Christina, come into another debate that we've been having, if you want to call it, that, money market funds. There is so much cash in money market funds right now, $6 trillion or so by some estimates. When does that cash come out, if at all? How sticky is that cash and does it belong to risk assets or can it stay there?
4: So I think the big question is how overweight uh, are investors in money markets? Um, Some exposure makes sense. Let's face it, that's part of being well diversified. But there is a significant overweight on the part of some investors. And I do think that starts to come out. Um, It's interesting because it could very well be something of a perfect storm this year, um, where we see rates start to go down. So money market looks less attractive uh, as a broadening of of the stock market uh, looks more attractive. I also think an important destination for some of that excess money market assets is likely to be longer duration fixed income. In particular, uh, I'm excited about investment grade bonds, but I also see... In the U.S.? Yes, in the U.S., (laughs) to a lesser extent in in Europe, um, but but definitely in the U.S., and I'm also very excited about emerging market debt.
3: Well, let's just talk about the emerging market, because that's twice that you've mentioned it. If I look at the flow into ETFs in emerging markets, you're looking at $26.5 billion going into equity ETFs. Now, of course, Goldman Sachs have been the mea culpa moment. They said, you want to strip out China from emerging markets. So, do you strip out China from the emerging market call that you've just made, and do you want to be longer of equity? than you are of debt within the EM trade.
4: No, I don't think you strip out China, although it probably makes sense because it's such a major economy and such a major investment destination to have it as a separate allocation. Um, but when I'm talking about emerging markets, I'm including China in there. I think there's potential there, especially if we see a continued rollout of targeted policies that are stimulative, um, that address, you know, for example, the property sector. Um, but there's a lot of opportunity outside China as well, especially in Asia EM that should benefit um, from an improving Chinese economy, um, but also have a lot of things in their favor. I mean, if we think about uh, some of the Asia EM countries, um, demographic trends are really attractive, rowing middle class. I mean, right. it's, it's an interesting time and also valuations look quite attractive. Hey, Christina, I feel like
2: we'd be remiss. Just 45 seconds. We're watching geopolitics. I'm thinking about politics in the U.S. later this year, the presidential election. Just very quickly, 30 seconds. How are you thinking about that?
4: Well, I think most investors have a long time horizon, and so they shouldn't let um, what's going on, the headlines, uh, which can sometimes be concerning and disturbing, uh, to take them away from a long-term investment plan that's well diversified. Um, yes, we're likely to see gyrations that, uh, that are more short-term in nature, um, but for most with long-time horizons, it's really all about being well diversified and putting on political blinders.
3: Okay, we've got the blinders on, Christina. We are agnostic. Christina? Tina Hooper there at Invesco with her calls on the equity markets. But let's talk a little bit more about because is there anybody really that can beat J.P. Morgan? Let's start there. It is Jared Cassie, head of U.S. bank equity strategy and large-cap bank analyst at RBC Capital Markets. He saved the U.S. banking system. Jamie Dimon did. That was in. Wait, the is this
2: 08 you're talking about? Oh, oh no, no again, I'm sorry. Again,
3: <laughs> no, no. He was he was alright. He was alright. He was alright well, well, for know. a few years. Uh, of course, we're talking about Jamie Dimon, J.P. Morgan, First Republic. Jared Cassidy, good morning to you. Is there anybody can catch up to J.P. Morgan? Are they invincible? Everybody's invincible. Everybody, everybody has a little bit of a, a risk with them. Talk me through your J.P. Morgan call. Good morning.
6: Good morning, Manis this year has been a great year for the JP Morgan shareholders and stock price led by Jamie Dimon as you pointed out the company is going to put up some very very strong uh, net income numbers this year and it's really been a flight to safety for many investors earlier in the year we're all obviously we remembered what happened in March with the Silicon Valley signature failures then of course in May with the First Republic failure and many long only investors were quite shaken by those events and as a result, they went into safety, and safety was J.P. Morgan. That has started to change, however, Manis. We've noticed it in the last four to five weeks risk on is now taking precedence over risk off. JP Morgan is still doing well, but now you're starting to see some of the other banks that people were more nervous about. A Bank of America, for example, with their unrealized bond losses in their health and maturity portfolio. That doesn't seem to be as much of an issue today. The stock has recovered nicely since the lows in well, October.
2: George, that's exactly where I wanted to go because you shared with us uh, a lineup um, of lists uh, or rather names of banks that you would want to invest in, I guess, or own, you, su- you suggest investors should own. JP Morgan isn't on that list.
6: What we suggest is, we for 2024 we really want to go risk on. And if there is an investor that is still concerned about the outlook for the U.S. economy or concerns about maybe the banking system, then certainly owning a J.P. Morgan is the way to go. But we don't see that. We see um, in 2024 the economy doing a soft landing, if you will. We see the Fed being finished with raising short-term interest rates. And if we're right on that call, this is. Shaping up possibly to be very similar to 1995, which, when you compare it to 1994, it was an awful year for banks. Everybody mm-hmm. was worried about what was going on. The Fed raised rates from three to six percent from February of '94 to February of '95, and the hard landing never came in '95, and the yeah. stocks were up 55 percent. So, soft landing, firm rate being reached is very positive for risk on banks in 2024.
2: Let me throw some numbers out for our radio and TV audiences. KBW Bank Index off four and a half percent year-to-date of 34% since October 27th. Then let's look at the regionals, obviously front and center this year. Uh, the KRE, it's off 6% year-to-date, but up almost 40% since October 25th. So it's been interesting to see the momentum here, like we've seen in so many different sectors, but especially in the financial sector. Of this list of names, so Bank of America's on it, Huntington Bank shares, Fifth Third, M&T Bank, Western Alliance. Is there a common theme, I mean, you've been talking about it a little bit, common theme among these names you think investors might want to suggest adding one of these to their portfolios?
6: One of the common themes is that the stocks are not terribly expensive. Um, When you look at the valuations of the banks today and you compare them to historical levels, we're still not at at or above historical uh, valuation levels. And second, the other thing that we have to remember is that when you take a look at the book value and tangible book value per share numbers for all the banks, well, that includes the unrealized bond losses that they have in their available-for-sale portfolios. And as you know, with the bond yield falling from you know close to 5% in, or at 5% in, in October to under 4%, those losses are going to drop, meaning book values and tangible book value growth is going to be faster, making the stocks even more attractive on a price-to-book or price-to-tangible book level, when you adjust for these unrealized losses.
5: Well, Gerard, let's go from valuations to fundamentals, because uh, when we think about sort of the business of banks, it feels like trading has been pretty good, but the deal-making side of things has obviously been pretty depressed this year and last year. Do you expect that dynamic to flip in 2024 or at least for deal-making to maybe see a little bit of a revival?
6: When you look at deal making within the banking system, you're right, it's been very depressed. And the main culprit has been interest rates. Because when you think about a buyer of a bank, another bank, they have to mark the book to market. So when you it to market, if you have a 3% or a 4% asset in a 7% or 6% yield uh, mar- market, you have to reduce the value of that asset. That has prevented deals from happening because the marks are too large. So if rates start to continue to fall or continue to fall in 24, plus as those assets pay off, the marks will diminish. And in 2025, we, we think we're going to really see a lot of activity. We're not very bullish on the big activity in 24. The other thing we have to keep in mind, we have regulatory changes coming under Basel III endgame. So many of the banks want to wait until see the final proposals before they move. So the regulatory outlook is also uncertain, which is weighing on M&A activity within the banking industry.
3: And I'm sure we'll hear from from the Don himself on regulation and uh, Basel III. I'm talking about all, not just Jamie Dunn but all the bank CEOs. But that's got a consequence, hasn't it, for the dividend and the payout scenario for U.S. banks going into next year, so uh, lay out that map for 2024 in terms of buybacks and dividends. Is is it buyback dividend delayed but not denied?
6: Um, Good question, Manis. I would say not on the dividends. Dividends are not going to be delayed in terms of increases. Uh, The banks have been increasing the dividends, um, maybe not as much as they've done in recent years, and we expect that to continue. But you did put your finger on the delay on the buybacks. There have been delays in buybacks because banks really want to see what the new capital requirements will be. And until they really get their arms around it, they're going to be a little more cautious. We should have some final proposals i think floated by the summertime so i think the buybacks will could potentially kick in very strong in the second half of the year and certainly in 2025 because the banks all have sufficient capital to exceed the new guidelines they just need to know what those are going to be
3: okay jared thank you very much interesting that uh, jpm isn't on your hot ticket list for the start of 2024 (laughs)
2: Uh, that route in the Red Sea, 12% of global trade goes through that. So if you want to look for, you know, a significant statistic and and impact potentially. So this is why it's on our radar. And that's why we want to get to our next guest, Stephen A. Cook. He's Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. And he is watching this situation, writing about it. I think we interrupted you this morning. Stephen, thank you for taking some time out because this certainly sounds like it's top of mind for Mm -hmm. you. How are you assessing the current situation in the Middle East as it feels like it is escalating? leading.
7: It's certainly the risk is there for a very significant escalation, and the Houthis, who are the ones responsible for attacking shipping in the Red Sea, are the primary actor. Uh, At the outset of the war in Gaza, everybody looked north toward Hezbollah, another Iranian proxy. But really, the group that has been most engaged in both threatening Israel with its uh, missiles and drones as well as uh, the Red Sea have been the Houthis, clearly at Iranian direction. So I think that... uh, There is a very, very significant risk of escalation there. Uh, The American announcement of a task force uh, to protect shipping is a good thing. It may not, however, necessarily ward off the Houthis.
3: Well, Steve, we had a conversation this morning with Wendy Schiller, and the debate is this, these proxies, this escalation in the proxies, uh, whether it's Hezbollah in Lebanon or the Houthi rebels in the Red Sea, is a proxy war which is much more directed against the United States perhaps than uh, the, the direct conflict of Hamas and Israel. To what extent, is there a point at which Iran will still keep some constraint on their proxies? Have they got full control of their proxies? Are they the absolute controller of what happens? Do you still think Iran is ultimately the arbiter of escalation with the proxies?
7: Well, there's really a range of autonomy for these groups. Hamas, for example, is relatively more autonomous than Hezbollah or the Houthis. Certainly when it comes to the Houthis' threats to shipping in the Red Sea, the Iranians have a major hand to play in it. In fact, there were reports that the Iranians were directing uh, the Houthis through the use of their own technology to attack certain ships and, and pick targets for them. So uh, as long as the Iran issue remains unaddressed uh, and their ability to arm and finance these groups, We're going to be contending with these problems. And as you pointed out, uh, 12 percent of global trade goes through the Red Sea. Uh, This is a major way in which Egypt, an extremely important country, earns hard currency. Uh, There are all kinds of economic and geopolitical implications of allowing the Houthis and their Iranian patrons to menace the global economy this way.
5: And Stephen, when it comes to the Red Sea, Bloomberg has reported in the past couple weeks that the U.S. is considering strikes on some of these Houthi bases. And when you think about how this could play out, what would tip the U.S. strategy from deterrence to actually going on the offense here?
7: Well, it seems at this point that the Biden administration is satisfied with setting up a task force. I think that what would trip the United States into direct action against the Houthis would be an attack on American warship itself. Uh, there is precedent for the United States protecting shipping. Way back in the late 1980s, the United States reflagged Kuwaiti oil tankers to protect them from Iranian attacks during the Iran-Iraq war. But that also came along in parallel with direct U.S. military action against Iranian forces uh, to prevent them from even threatening uh, threatening shipping. That doesn't seem to be the case with this task force. I think the United States wants to remain actually on the defensive here, uh, unless, of course, American forces come under direct fire.
5: Well, that's what I want to talk about. I mean, do you think that this task force will be enough to be that strong enough deterrence that would keep this contained to just acting on the defense?
7: No. Uh, In short, there are already American warships in the Red Sea uh, that have taken action to defend against uh, Houthi attacks, uh, yet the attacks keep coming. It it strikes me that an important part of deterrence is also the willingness to use military force to establish rules of the road. And thus far, the United States has shied away from doing that for fear of widening the conflict. But the Houthis and the Iranians and Hezbollah seem determined to incrementally widen this conflict. Uh, I think with the United States on uh, the defensive and merely reacting to the Houthis is asking for more trouble. So
2: does the U.S. need to be more on the offensive in some regard, more so than it is? And I say that uh, just a headline crossing. And this is uh, uh, on Twitter, X, whatever you'd like to call it. This is from Barack Ravid. He's a political reporter from Axios, Uh, and he says Secretary of State Tony Blinken expected to travel to the middle east late next week to talk about the gaza war five u.s israeli and arab officials were telling him this Blinken planning to visit israel uh, the west bank jordan the uae saudi arabia and qatar that's pretty big trip and that sounds like they've got some plans or hopes for some plans to maybe bring i don't know to maybe move this forward in some regard how do you read that and what does the u.s's role need to be maybe in a more aggressive fashion or more um not so defensive but much more on the offensive
7: Well, certainly Secretary Blinken has taken the lead in American diplomatic efforts to uh, stabilize the region and uh, accelerate Israel's uh, war against Hamas in order to bring it to an end and to plan for the day after. When it comes to the Red Sea, this is really something for uh, the Department of Defense, and it, it strikes me. That the United States does need to take more uh, action against the Houthis. Otherwise, uh, once again, shipping in the Red Sea will come under threat. And we'll be living with this situation and the consequences of it for some time.
2: Hey, Stephen, before we go, 20 seconds, what's your headline going to be on your story? What should it be, you think?
7: I don't write the headlines, but it should be precisely what I just said. The United States needs to go on the offensive.
2: All right, going to leave it there. Hey, thank you so much. I know a busy morning for you, and so appreciate you stepping out uh, to give us a few minutes there. Stephen A. Cook, he is, of course, of the Council on Foreign Relations, joining us here on Surveillance. You know, we're kind of thinking about big, broad strokes, especially when it comes to 2024, and especially when it comes to the energy space as we watch what's going on in the Middle East, concerns about that escalation. Uh, we've heard a lot on that in terms of what could potentially come in 2024. Nadia Martin-Wigan uh, is director of it, um, Svelyn Capital, and joining us to talk a little bit about the trade in energy and more this morning. Nadia, we are seeing oil prices back off a little bit after that 2.7, 2.8% run up yesterday. How are you thinking about the energy trade against the Middle Eastern uh, backdrop?
8: Good morning. I, I think morning. what we saw with yesterday's move is that the market has been positioned in quite a short way. It, it has been short ever since the OPEC announcement came out with core communication, and we now see that as we have the U.S. you know actually launching into Iraq, that that risk premium is starting to come back in, back to the forefront of thinking, you know, but we're not at the highs we've seen before. I'd say on where we are right now, maybe up to $82 is possible. We are cautiously optimistic about the energy complex as we start 2024 overall.
2: So how do you think about levels? We all remember a much more expensive barrel of oil uh, years ago. Uh, I'm looking at what back in uh, 2022, uh, we hit about 91 a barrel. So I'm just thinking about how do you think about the price action? Do you feel comfortable putting a level out there for maybe 2024, at least the early part of the year.
8: Well, I think at the start, what the market really wants to see, and this is something you mentioned, is you know, we have this supply side story coming from the U.S. and the market wants to see inventory draws start to come. And prior to this escalation and possible rerouting of things through Suez and avoiding the Red Sea, we saw big builds coming in in January, right? Now, now it's looking more flattish and we'll start to see draws in February and March, and that's where we can start to see that build up in crude prices. However, what we saw in September September is we hit a ceiling at $95 a barrel in terms of the futures market. The physical market was trading at above $100 a barrel, but especially with the strength of the US dollar, we saw that, you know, India, China, they were pulling back from buying. We had a backup of West African crude from Angola that we haven't seen since since COVID in terms of unsold um, barrels waiting to load. And so I think that, you know, the kinds of levels that we saw X having, you know, just the complete shutdown uh, of things in the Middle East, we're not going to see that kind of February pricing march like we saw initially when Russia invaded
3: Ukraine. Nadia, good morning. You're cautiously optimistic. They must be happy over uh, the White House because they're able to fill up the SPR. We're sub $80. But you raise the specter. And I think this is a, a very interesting point. Um, much criticism of the price cap that was pushed by the Americans. You think that that will come back on the late in 2024 and that they will push for tighter sanctions and perhaps a lower cap. Now, just run me through where you think that falls.
8: Yeah, I I think they might not necessarily lower the cap of $60 a barrel, but they will enforce the cap, right? So when we, especially when we dip down into the 60s on WTI, that really gave a green light to the Biden administration that we're at comfortable levels in in terms of the oil price. And, you know, they said they would initially buy at $69 a barrel. Then they told the Saudis, you know, right before the invasion of Israel by Hamas that, you know, 79 is okay. So they're in that comfortable range. I think that if we were to see crude you know back up in the 90s then that will create a stress again on the Biden administration but what we've seen is they're starting to go after these tankers we're seeing things being backed up in terms of deliveries especially into India because the cost of freight and shipping is going higher and we reach these difficulties and this also happened in September that you know you, you start to have that complete cost come together for a refiner and it hits their margins and in this latest crude move that we've seen yesterday, you know, we saw $2 come off the refinery margin. If they then have to spend tons more on the freight costs, then that becomes problematic, right? So, that is where I think it will be a potentially more effective uh, price cap, uh, but, you know, until we get too high.
3: Well, isn't the truth of it that they need to turn the screws and be a little bit more judicious in, in how they treat Iranian oil, which they have been quite lush if the reporting is to be significant believe. They have been easy on Iranian crude. U.S. crude is pumping like bilio. So the supply side and the discretion on sanctions on Iran, you know, are going to be are going to come to bear as well in 2024, aren't they?
8: I think so. We've seen 650,000 barrels per day of production growth in Iran this year. We actually see upside of 150,000 barrels per day potentially next year if the Iranians go for it. But of course, they can start to tighten that. But I think the Biden administration has been very nervous about doing that and doing that for Russia as well, because the IAA and all the agencies have been talking since the war in Ukraine began that we're going to lose a million barrels per day of Russian oil any moment, right? Now they've finally given up and the market is thinking, OK, we'll get 20,0, 300,000 barrels per day, less crude in or, or less exports in the first quarter. But it's still big numbers yep. if the U.S. were really to go after both of those countries.
2: Can I just say I'm kind of like blown as I'm hearing like the levels of production and more production and mm-hmm. like whatever happened to like alternative fuels and the discussions around that?
5: Uh, it's definitely not in this conversation. I'll say that. No. But I want to keep the conversation going on production and specifically talk about U.S. production because U.S. shale production obviously been on fire this year. Just to go through through some of these numbers, Nadia, this time last year, the U.S. government forecasting domestic production would average $12.5 million of barrels a day in this current quarter. But in recent days, that estimate was bumped to $13.3 million. That difference is the equivalent of adding a new Venezuela to global Mm -hmm. supplies. You think about this fantastic growth that we've seen in U.S. shale. Do you think that momentum will continue?
8: I think there's a seasonality, right? So in the first half of the year, and especially the first three, four months, we will probably see that momentum slow down, even flatten. You know, they're even forecasting a dip, the EIA, which we're a bit skeptical about because uh, you know the the market is doing well. We've we've seen energy stocks t- start to come back now. When you look at their pricing, and all these M and A deals are being viewed positively, right? But there is this seasonality, and you tend to have this pickup in the second half of the year. That is when you see those numbers. And historically, the EIA has had to revise up that, that production figure by 600,000 barrels per day by year end. So when we look towards next year, the forecasts are for around 400,000 barrels per day production growth. And typically, that's a very low number. You either see it decline in production, or you see it increase, you know, more like 600, 800, 1.1 million barrels per day. So I think we'll see this slowing in the The first part of the year, which will give strength, I think, and support to the market, it will then help OPEC think about bringing back some production, especially in the second half of the year when they expect demand to pick up depending on the interest rate situation Mm -hmm. in the U.S., but then they need to be careful because you have this catch-up, and I think what the market really got wrong this year is we didn't see rig counts come up, right? We've had Three mile laterals, they're talking about four mile laterals in the shale patch. And this is something that now the market is aware that this can happen. So they're going to be watching it. So they're not going to be expecting, you know, 50 rigs to come up every month in order to have this supply coming forward. We'll be much more aware of it, I think, and prepared.
5: All right, Nadia, 20 seconds, though. It sounds like you're saying that U.S. shale production and OPEC, they will get closer to the same page. Absolutely. They want to
8: support a market, I think, long term. And then this is where the shale producers, they t- still talk about capital discipline and, and giving money to shareholders, but they're actually doing a lot in terms of activity and production. So they are trying to find that happy balancing point. And you know, when we think about global trade and, and how things work, you know, it's good for America's energy security. It's also good for shipping because you then have this alternate route that of course can be much longer if you're going all the way to Asia, especially if you have to miss Suez. But, you know, going to Europe, we also have that level of production to replace Russia.
2: All right. Good to know. And some uh, good macro thoughts when it comes to certainly the energy markets. Nadia, thank you so much. Nadia martin Wigan, a civilian capital, joining us on a day when we see crude a little bit lower in today's trade.
0: Nobody ever says make it complicated.
2: Let's get to it with Sal Hardy, research analyst over at CFRA. Sal, good to have you here. Healthcare, talk about it. We gave you some of the big macro backdrop, but it does feel like there's some stuff going on. Um, Look back at 2023. Are there trends that we saw that you assume will kind of carry over to 2024?
9: Yeah, hi, thanks for having Good me. Good morning. So we think 2023 was a difficult year for the healthcare sector. We saw some weakness and volatility and significant variances in terms of performances across companies. Uh, and despite its defensive nature, the sector overall has been weaker compared to the other sectors since the beginning of the year. The S&P 500 healthcare index was down by 0.7% year to date, which compares to the S&P 500's remarkable performance of nearly 24% gain during the same period. But leaving us behind, we expect 2024 to be the year of gradual recovery, especially for biopharma. Uh, our chief investment strategist expects a rotation from 2023's worst performers to 2024's best performers and the sold-off healthcare sub-industries such as pharmaceuticals and technology relative to the overall markets should offer nice buying opportunities at current valuations.
3: So we need to, as, as it were, segregate the healthcare market uh, discerningly perhaps in the same way as when people say let's buy tech. Uh, you need to be a little bit more discerning. Just take us a little bit further into that narrow about how we segregate out the winners and the losers. We spend a lot of time talking about weight loss drugs and where they go. Those are the big blockbusters. Eli Lilly up uh, 56% on the year. You got Nova Nordisk up 47% uh, year to date. So if you take me beyond borders uh, and a little bit deeper, where can I achieve a similar return in perhaps a more diversified field?
9: So when we look at the performance of the 10 sub-industries individually within the healthcare sector during 2023, uh, we notice there are different, uh, essentially, performances. For example, healthcare supplies, healthcare facilities, and healthcare distributors were the clearest performers year-to-date. On the other hand, healthcare services, healthcare technology, and life-science tools services were the worst performers. So, overall, we expect uh, improved revenue performance throughout 2024 as the comparison base gets easier versus 2023. As you may know, a number of companies within the healthcare sector continue to face year-on-year tough comparisons due to sharp declines in COVID-19-related revenues. So along with the anticipated margin improvement driven by ongoing cost initiatives taken throughout 2023, i think gradual recovery should be in the cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, our technical analysis team at Lowry Research, a CFRA business, thinks that certain healthcare sub-industries are showing positive trend patterns such as the beaten-down healthcare services.
5: So let's zoom out, let's talk about the sector overall, and let's talk about some of these weight loss drugs because that's really been all anyone has wanted to talk about for the past couple months or so. So uh Like we mentioned at the top, I mean, you've seen certain companies just have runaway years, especially when you think about the likes of Novo Nordis overseas, Eli Lilly over here. But it's been interesting that it seems like cell that's dragging down the rest of the sector. When you think about the disruption and uh, the Ozempic effect, if you want to call it that, I know that uh, that's specific to one company, but the Ozempic effect on some of the other companies in the healthcare sector.
9: So uh, we think that essentially L.I. Lilly will continue to become a more uh, valuable company during 2024 and we'll continue to uh, ride the hype around the GLP-1 uh, interest. Uh, so essentially we are still very bullish on L.I. Lilly, which generates more than half of its revenue from its diabetes portfolio, but it's also very well diversified in other therapy areas such as cardiovascular, immunology, neuroscience and oncology. We think oncology is still a very big area and it will remain the largest therapy area and by Pharma, uh, generating strong sales during 2024. Uh, within our coverage, we think Merck and Lilly are the best uh, positioned companies mm. with their key oncology franchises.
5: It's interesting to hear you say that. I come back to a call from BMO earlier this month basically raising Amgen to outperform on its obesity drug potential. Their reasoning came back down to valuation that basically you think about the promise of Amgen's pipeline. Of course, uh, it doesn't really match what Eli Lilly has on the market right now, but basically Eli Lilly is trading at such a premium, it's time to look at maybe some of the more least, less expensive options, if you want to call them that. When you're thinking about analyzing Eli Lilly and the like how much are you taking valuation into account
9: oh absolutely we take uh, valuation seriously but I, we think that essentially there's still uh, a good rally potentially for Eli Lilly through 2024 because we see several catalysts it's not just the uh, um, diabetes portfolio, but we think the company has really solid medium to long-term growth prospects. It has a diversified portfolio of strong brands. It's focused on innovation. We have seen several new product launches. Uh, LIO has also begun recent acquisitions. And the company has a strong balance sheet, which is a key differentiator. Uh, we think uh, the near-term uh, late-stage therapies uh, development will be important, for example, for Alzheimer's disease, the nonimab, will be a key development this year. And for appetite we think uh, we may be seeing other approvals for other indications, which are going to be important.
3: We saw another headline yesterday, Bristol-Myers coming out, to, uh, putting a $4 billion offer on the table for uh, Raised Bio. What is it that justifies in Pharma a mega merger? I don't know whether we can put $4 billion in the the category of mega merger, um, but but what do you expect for next year? What is it that justifies doing deals in 2024? Are we going to see more bolt-on acquisitions like this, or is it going to be a year of something uh, significant?
9: So for biopharmaceutical companies, deals can be as important for growth as scientific discoveries, as they can really help companies struggling to grow internally. We have seen an increasing number of biopharma companies turning to M&A this year for innovation and increase their revenues by augmenting their pipelines or entering new therapeutic areas. Uh, so we think uh, for 2024, we are going to see a similar level of activities. But at the same time, we're also seeing some antitrust risk on the rise. For example, we're seeing the Federal Trade Commission uh, to be taking a more active stance on antitrust review. However, uh, we think this is not stopping the large companies to look for large deals because they really need to invest and focus on innovation.
2: Yeah, no, that's always right. So it has to be for- forefront in terms of future growth for these companies. Sal Hardy, thank you so much. Sal Hardy of CFRA joining us to talk about the healthcare sector. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Carol Masser, and this is Bloomberg.